20th century, it was all about, um, you know, there's there were myths, right, underlying everything. The, the myth of a way, that place you could send your waste. The 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 myth that uh, uh, ultimately that 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 we weren't uh, taking any account of um, of uh, the uh, repercussions, the the non-financial repercussions of our activities, the the um, externalities, and what. We in the early days of organic were all about was internalizing those externalities, was taking stock of them and saying, look, if we're going to be in commerce, we need to be accountable to our planet, to other forms of life, to future generations that we need to uh, uh, measure and reduce uh, and, and be accountable for our water footprint, our climate footprint, our social footprints and so forth. Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Gary Hirschberg, a well-known entrepreneur and former CEO of Stonyfield Yogurt. A shorter version of this interview premiered live on our YouTube channel during last winter's symposium and is still available to watch. There you can click show chat replay in the top right corner to see the comments and questions that viewers posted in real time. Welcome to the Real Organic Project podcast. And uh, my guest today is Gary Hirschberg. Um, Gary has a pretty amazing story of starting as a partner with Samuel Kamen many years ago, milking one cow, I believe, in the very beginning, and making yogurt to fund their nonprofit, which seems like a crazy idea, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you're gonna make money. And, and you know, of course, that one cow evolved into Stonyfield yogurt, which has uh, you know, become a very, a very big enterprise. So I'm looking forward to the conversation. This will be interesting, welcome. Thank you. And to clarify, it was Samuel who was doing the milking. Samuel's really the creator of Stonyfield. I joined him. I was on the board of the little nonprofit and uh, rural education center that Samuel started, and I joined him a few months after we launched Stonyfield. Uh, so he uh, he's he was the lonely farmer, and I'm not sure any of us were thinking too much about revenue at the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I met Samuel. Uh, Back in the early days of NOFA, he was a founder and a, a, a major organizer, a ball of energy in, in the development of the organic movement in the Northeast. Yeah, those early NOFA conferences, Samuel even woke us up in the morning. He was the alarm clock. He would go around <laughs> clanging his cowbell. Legendary energy, really. And uh, partnering with him generally meant uh, tying on and ha hanging on for dear life. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I'd like to talk about, we're, we're, we're here to talk about milk and money and talk about um, the challenges that face the organic dairy world now, the organic dairy farms, talk about the gap between what we want organic to be and what sometimes it has become. Um, before we do, could you just give a little bit of context for 
Stonyfield from that, that beginning. Sure. And, uh, there's an excellent, um, excellent interview with you that Guy, Guy Ross did on um, how I built this. And I recommend it to people who are interested. It's yeah. very, very entertaining and informative. <laughs> but, you know, so just a quick, a, a quick few minutes through the evolution. Sure, sure. Uh, well, at first, thanks for having me. Uh, as you know, I haven't been uh, the most enthusiastic uh, champion of the Real Organic Project, but I, I know that we have the same end goal, so I'm delighted to be chatting with you and your, your folks. Um, so my organic journey really began uh, growing up in southern New Hampshire. Uh, most of the farm, we knew where most of our holiday hams and turkeys came from. Uh, we knew the farmers, and one by one, they slowly disappeared during my adolescence. And, and uh, ultimately, in college, I studied climate change, which was, uh, even then, back in the 70s, uh, a pretty known and clear science. Uh, that work led me into organic and led me to a little place called the New Alchemy Institute on Cape Cod, which, as you know, was advancing... Um, uh, integrated uh, to ecological strategies that uh, integrated an understanding about carbon and other footprints, the need to decrease our input footprints, um, and also on the other end, uh, creating highly productive uh, ecological food systems with aquaculture and hydroponics and agriculture, all with the absence of chemicals and chemical fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides. So I really kind of cut my teeth there in the early 70s. Um, and as you point out, uh, this was a time of advancing the science, uh, challenging, asking really challenging questions. Can we be highly productive without all these inputs? And we proved unequivocally, scientifically, with uh, National Science Foundation backing and, and peer-reviewed papers that uh, we could be highly productive. In fact, uh, our bioshelter agriculture, the indoor organic ag systems that we're uh, producing with fish and vegetables and, again, organic hydroponic uh, systems and so forth, uh, were among then the highest, uh, mo most productive ecological food systems in the world in terms of per square meter and per acre. Um, but what we weren't proving was the economics. We were proving the science. And so that became um, very evident when uh, Ronald Reagan became president in 1981. And in his literally first days in office, he slashed all funding. Uh, he got rid of the Community Services Administration, which was funding uh, a variety of um, uh, community garden programs and, and efforts to, to educate about these technologies all over. I was chairing one of those. I uh, slashed all renewable energy funding at the Department of Energy, all organic funding at USDA. And suddenly we, in the sort of progressive ag and, uh, and sustainable systems world, found ourselves without uh, any basis of federal support. And that also meant that the competition for private support, which we were a 501c3 nonprofit, also dried up because the nonprofits had to Get real, put real safety nets in place for the, all the, the, the millions of, of real needs out there of, of uh, people who were food, uh, nutrition and, uh, uh, water, clean water challenged. And so, uh, we became kind of the discretionary, uh, funding and it, money got a lot tougher. Uh, it was about that time that, um, Samuel came in, who, as you say, I had known from the early NOFA days and, uh, big, big fan of his Samuel uh, and the Rural Education Center 
his little organic farming school uh, invited me to join his board to help figure out what we were trying to figure out at New Alchemy, which is how to create um, self-funded mechanisms that could replace the, the funding that had been driving all of our research. And at New Alchemy, we were doing consulting and we were selling uh, greenhouse kits and doing um, things uh, that uh, would generate revenue. Uh, Samuel had a much smaller little nonprofit and much fewer options. Um, but Samuel had something that we didn't have. He had this genius for fermented foods in particular. In fact, um, he was making beer, he was making kimchi, he was making sauerkraut, and he was making this delicious yogurt from his one cow. And uh, during one of many board meetings, as we were wringing our hands trying to figure out how do we um, rescue this little nonprofit, how do we keep the work going, uh, because we knew we were on the right track scientifically, um, somebody, and to this day, I'm not sure who gets the credit, uh, but somebody said, why don't you start selling this stuff? Because we were sitting there eating Samuel and Louise's delicious ambrosia-like plain yogurt with his maple syrup at, at our board meeting. Anyhow, um, that became the inspiration for Stonyfield. We borrowed, uh, he borrowed uh, $35,000 from the Sisters of Mercy, a group of Catholic nuns. You can hear all of this in the How I Built This podcast. But the point is, is that uh, soon it became evident that um, this was a uh, really important question that uh, he and we were asking, which is, uh, can we make this a commercially viable, can we get organic into the mainstream? There were no um, national organic standards at that time. As you know, organic was whatever the local certifier said. Okay. So, and what did organic mean to you then? Well, for me, it was a sort of a, I would say, simplistic definition. It was the absence of pesticides, herbicides, and chemical fertilizers. It was the absence of antibiotics in animal feed. Um, it, was a, it was a kind of a sacred vow to just swear off a lot of these sort of 20th century shortcuts. Um, but, uh, you know, I've grown and developed since then. And uh, what I would say, uh, uh, it wasn't uh, enough, there wasn't enough focus on, for example, the climate benefits, the, the metrics needed to really um, track the progress of organics. Uh, the nitrogen flows on farms and particularly the nitrogen um, wastage and leakage and emissions from farms. And so over my decades since then, my, my own definition has evolved. And of course, the organic standards, um, uh, which had been um, first put forward in uh, 1990, or first bundled by Kathleen Merrigan and company, ultimately after another 12 years in the early 2000s, finally came to uh, bear in terms of uh, regulations. But it's for me, it's always been a continuous improvement process. The standards are standards. They're, they're never done. They're never finished. And uh, this is where you and I do agree, is that the standards must continue to evolve. For us, though, it was uh, what uh, uh, NOFA, uh, in particular NOFA Vermont, which was our certifier, uh, said it was. It was, again, the, the absence of negatives as opposed to more of the uh, kind of metrics around the positives. I think, I think there's a... A challenge with standards because uh, you're almost writing something for a lawyer 
you know, uh, yeah, be, because defense, lawyers will, defensive will challenge it. But yeah. before there were standards, there was a movement. And the movement was not just based on the absence of it, it was based on very much positive beliefs. I know that, that Samuel had those positive oh, beliefs. Yeah. We he all was did. one of the great teachers, right? Yeah, yeah, we all did. No, I mean, uh, it, I, if we could have captured what we all believed in those early days of New Alchemy and uh, Stonyfield and the Rural Education Center, I would say the standards would be uh, very close to what uh, Bob Rodale ultimately called regenerative organic. Uh, Bob was a dear friend of mine, one of the early funders of Stony of uh, New Alchemy, and I walked in the fields in Emmaus with him at the with the incredible side by side uh, corn trials that started. And Bob explained this word regenerative, and he said, "Look, organic uh, falls short of what we ultimately need to aspire to. It doesn't me measure in." Uh, worker health, farmer health, uh, animal health. It doesn't, uh, although it has subsequently uh, integrated animal health uh, uh, standards, but it doesn't uh, measure in uh, economic equity, uh, fairness, um, uh, diversity, and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, I can just take this moment in this interview just to say right away that what Bob intended for the use of the word regenerative is not what is happening in the marketplace right now. We have a great threat to organic, which is that many of these large companies see it as a workaround. Uh, it's a word, they're taking advantage of the fact that there is no definition. I mean, you can take issue with organic standards, but at least there's a legal definition and at least there's penalties and fines, and even in some cases jail time associated with, with um, breaking, with, you know, not, not following the standards. But, uh, but the word regenerative is, is uh, you know, there's as many different definitions as there are users. But what Bob intended was a kind of an organic plus. And I, I agree with that. The regenerative organic standard, a kind of a, a reach up is something I heartily embrace. Um, but in those days, uh, we were, you know, we were just setting out. And as you say, the standards, uh, I, I feel, you know, I, look, I talk to the Joe Smileys of the world, the people who are in there early uh, really slaving to define standards that, as you say, would hold up to the test of law and, 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 uh, regulation and certification. And, uh, by definition, it was narrower than I think we all would have, uh, idealized. I, I agree with that. But I also think that the, actually the standards were pretty good. They were pretty good. I just think they haven't been enforced, but, but I do think they were pretty good. And, yeah, and well, I, amazingly good. You know, congratulations to Kathleen. That's right. And the people who put those together. That's right. No, it was an awesome start. And I too remember I was also very associated with, uh, you know, um, the, the Soil Association in the UK and other parts of the world, Patrick. And, you know, all of us were collaborating and having discussions. The, early, the start of iPhone began in those days. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're, what was, what we were needing was something that everyone could agree on as a baseline. Um, that I don't think any of us who took part, any of us who funded, any of us who did the hard work were ever saying, this is done now. Yeah. Um, but I'm just merely pointing out that I think that the ambitions of NOFA, uh, the Rural Education Center, uh, New Alchemy, and ultimately Stonyfield were to, um, Integrate, uh, we're, we're to, we're, we're to create a, uh, a standard, a definition that, um, would, uh, enable, uh, consumers and all of us to in, make a conscious choice to invest 
in a different approach than had been the predominant you know, paradigm of the 20th century. In the yeah. 20th century, it was all about, um, you know, there's, there were myths, right, underlying everything. The, the myth of a way, that place you could send your waste. The, 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 the myth that uh, uh, ultimately that, that, that we weren't uh, taking any account of, um, of uh, the uh, repercussions, the, the non-financial repercussions of our activities, the, the um, externalities. And what we in the early days of organic were all about was internalizing those externalities, was taking stock of them and saying, look, if we're going to be in commerce, we need to be accountable to our planet, to other forms of life, to future generations that we need to uh, uh, measure and reduce uh, and, and be accountable for our water footprint, our climate footprint, our social footprints, and so forth. But to your point, um, you know, and getting back to the story, uh, when we began, we were not just organic, we were actually biodynamic. Samuel had, uh, we built our herd up to about 19 cows and they were on an herb treatment and so on and so forth. But what happened for us uh, was uh, something that happened to many of our colleagues as we tried to make the transition from um, nonprofit advocacy to actual commerce uh, and sort of pay the bills. Um, we uh, outgrew quickly our 19 cows at the farm. Um, the, 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 the magic night is captured in that podcast. It was the night the power went out when we had finished milking one cow and we had to milk the other 18 by hand. And the next morning, Samuel, and then start making yogurt and running our business and me collecting investment. And we realized we couldn't do both. You know, we look at people like Jack and Ann Laser at Butterworks who farmed and processed with utter astonishment. You know, I'm, a, I'm just, I've, Jack, who unfortunately, of course, has left us, but I've, Jack heard me say a thousand times, um, that I just worship him because he did things we couldn't do. But we were, we were setting out to educate. We were setting out to inspire. We wanted consumers to realize that they could get superior quality and still be responsible for external, for reducing externalities. And so we needed to find other farms and we could not find any farms willing to do all the crazy stuff we were doing with the herbs. Um, the thought of not using antibiotics was anathema. Farmers terrified them as it does often young parents and, and uh, we literally couldn't find a single organic farm and uh, uh, around and it, until Peter Flint came along about eight years later and started the organic cow. And Peter then and Bunny um, started exciting some other farmers in the area. And and uh, so we went through a uh, we actually went the wrong way um, at the very beginning. We in 1984, end of 1984, when we had to. Um, uh, expand, we started buying in non-organic milk. Now it was hormone-free, antibiotic-free. It was, um, and so we weren't certified organic at this, at this point. It was also, um, we were uh, 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 trying to convince these farmers to uh, get away from pesticides, herbicides, chemical fertilizers. But in order to stay alive, we had to take a kind of a hiatus. And it took us until I'm not even remembering the date, but I would say it was about eight years, like I said, until we were able to ultimately get to the scale where, first of all, we were financially viable. 
Um, during that period, as you heard in the podcast, we burned a lot of cash, making a lot of mistakes. Part of the problem was we were selling uh, 69 cent cups of yogurt in a market that was three for a dollar yogurts. I mean, it was superior. It was a better quality yogurt uh, or dollar 69 quarts in a world that was 99 cent quarts. So we were, but we were also making tons of mistakes, getting tons of learnings and, and frankly, uh, creating a yogurt that had no preservatives, no fillers, no thickeners, getting it to shelf, getting it to stay on the shelf, getting it through, um, uh, getting it through a, let's call it a variable cold supply chain was, uh, you know, the, 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 that, that summarizes millions of dollars of losses that we incurred in this time. So, uh, thanks to heroic folks like Peter and Bunny and others, we were able to finally start to buy organic milk in the early 90s and began slowly converting everything. By that time, the company was up to, I'm going to say around $10 million in sales. And by the time we were $15 million in sales, uh, we were able to start really converting. And by the time we were at, I'm going to say $21 million in sales, which is roughly 1994 or so, we were back to 100% organic. Mm -hmm. The dates, I may be a little off there, but... Um, so you were able to return to 100% organic, which is where you always wanted to be. Yeah. So this is very interesting. Um, one of the things that that interesting guy, David Weinstein, said to me this week is, you know, he said, I, he said, I saw a bumper sticker at EcoFarm and it was like, support your local organic farmer. And he said, you know, I just hate that bumper sticker because it's not enough. A farmer never exists in a vacuum. Mm. You can't just support the farmer. You need to support the store, the outlet, the, the distributor, the ecosystem that mm -hmm. we live in. And, and so we need to build a whole organic ecosystem for this to succeed in the way that we, That's that, right. we that we imagine. Well, I think, I think a big part of the organic movement has been rebuilding a food system that was lost. You know, I began my story by telling you in southern New Hampshire, I knew, we knew the farms, we knew the names of the sheep we were, you know, eating, the lamb we were eating. Uh, that's all gone. I mean, that means that in those days, the veterinarians, the tractor suppliers, the, the feed folks, they're, you know, they were all there. And uh, the early days of NOFA was a recognition that not only had we lost a lot of the, I don't want to call it ancient wisdom, but the traditional wisdom of farming more tuned into nature, you know, less with fewer of the shortcuts, but we had lost the ability to, uh, you know, I mentioned to bring cold products from a farm to the market. We had lost the ability. I mean, veterinarians didn't know how to take care of animals without uh, using antibiotics and drugs. And of course, nowadays, uh, the uh, vets are, um, you know, they're like the Maytag salespeople when it comes to organics. There's nothing to do because the animals are so healthy. Uh, but there were very few vets who were courageous enough to help us farmers to, to, to make that leap. So it was a absolutely, uh, at a very basic level, a, a, a statement that we need to rebuild a food system from, from scratch with an entirely different set of mores, like I say, with with a, con with a conscious commitment to reducing and being responsible for externalities. That's, a, that's not the way we had evolved in the prior century. Yeah, and also 
you and Samuel are a good example of the fact that you were both first-generation farmers. Yeah, well, I, I was, Samuel was the farmer. Too. I just I don't want to take okay. credit where Great. he isn't due. Uh, he he was the farmer. I was the I was the um, the business fix-it guy. I was the educator, the marketer, the money guy. Um, but yeah, we were. Uh, and so too, you know, I mentioned to you uh, all the dairy farmers who would not even consider the things we were talking about. We we sat hat in hand at their kitchen tables, many of them after milking, and said, "Look." This is what we'd like you to do. And they were looking at us like we were crazy. I mean, it wasn't just uh, they weren't interested. They thought this was nuts. Um, and, uh, you know, the reason I invoked Peter and Bunny Flint is because in the end, the farmers um, did not want to talk to us, the business people, even the Samuels. They wanted to talk to and hear from other farmers. And over the years, as we're now up to supporting 2,000 organic dairies, right? Uh, family farms, average herd size, 66 cows. Um, the primary way that farmers have come on board has been because other farmers have encouraged them. Um, but the other, and you, you really raise a good point here, the other reason that we've been so successful in building to the scale we are now, which is more like 400 million in annual sales, is because the whole infrastructure is now back in place. We have the vets, we have the suppliers, we have, um, you know, now in those days, we could find one veterinarian for all of New England who would travel to a farm that wasn't using antibiotics or hormones. Um, you know, uh, now you've got a lot more around there. there the, the science is out there. It's been published. It's been reviewed. The, there's a track record. We now know that organically raised cows live twice as long as conventional cows. That was a uh, something uh, we knew, Samuel knew, especially cows treated homeopathically, but uh, we couldn't convince others others to do that. Okay, so the, the art of the possible is a big part of this, being able to see it. Yeah. Somebody can go and see it. I, I will disagree with one thing you said. You sort of said, well, I was not the farmer. I was the business guy. And farms simply don't survive without that knowledge, well, yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Whether, whether it's a separate person yeah. no, or and I, it's I was milking and yes, but, but yeah. Yeah, but and I, I, this I, is the challenge that, that farmers face if they're going to consider well, when we being come, their own processor. Yeah, and forgive me for interrupting, but when we come around to the situation with the horizon situation now, I couldn't agree with you more. You will see that the, the new partnership that I know we'll speak about shortly is uh, including the entire ecosystem. Yeah. It's, it's farmers, it's processors, it's uh, brands, it's government, it's uh, activists and stakeholders, and most importantly, it's consumers. Yeah. One, one of the things that, you know, Samuel and I, one of the underlying um, kind of credos that we had is that we wanted consumers to understand that food wasn't produced in the back of the supermarket. Now we can say that in 2022 and maybe people will think it's ridiculous. It wasn't ridiculous in 1983. Uh, we had evolved through the era of Fluffernutter and Oreos to believe that food was something made somewhere and the farmer wasn't even part of the equation. In fact, farming was thought to be dirty, you know, and so, you know, Samuel's late night travels all over the Northeast lecturing to classrooms and anybody who would listen and my advocacy work at New Alchemy was to say, hey, 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 no farms, no food. 
uh, and organic is a is is more likely way for these farmers to survive than than conventional systems. Um, it's anti-inflationary. You know, you have less purchased inputs. Um, yes, it's more labor intensive, but uh, you get a better price, and over time you get higher yield. We knew this in the science. We knew this from new alchemy research. You know, peer review funded research. We knew this from Samuel's farm. But uh, yeah, the the objective here, you, you know, you you, you take you, we can't take for granted today how far removed we all were back then. And even we in the organic movement need to constantly remember. And this gets back to my point about why I'm. I'm not uh, in entire agreement with the the objectives of the um, or the methods I should say of the real organic project is that there's many <laughs> we're a rounding error in terms of total food system right and so efforts that tend to well-intentioned efforts that tend to divide us among ourselves when when really the real enemy is the is is the folks who are not measuring and reducing externalities right and we just need to keep that in mind sure we, sure. we, we, I just, it's important to say that uh, I think the, for organic to devolve into just a debate about standards, and I, again, fully agree that the standards are in need of constant, particularly right now, improvement. Um, but there will always be a need of improvement. But we can't lose sight of the fact that this is much more than about food. This is how we think, right? Organic is about uh, recognizing that the earth is not our subsidiary. We are a subsidiary of planet earth. Every, every human endeavor, every economic entity out there has been made possible by a bountiful earth. But somehow in the myth, the, the myths that underlaid 20th century, you know, the, the industrial revolution, we, we somehow came to believe that the earth is our subsidiary. It's there for the taking and the dumping. That's one of the big myths. And organic is intended to, to help us write our place, put ourselves as partners with nature, not as dominant over. And um, yes, we need better standards. And yes, we need there, there. And we need metrics. And we need to have, as Bob Rodale was suggesting with the regenerative notion, we need to have all, we need to have win, 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 win food systems where, where there are no losers, where the this air, water, and soil, the, the the living organisms in the soil and the air and the water, the humans, the farmers, the processors, the consumers, all can win. And I, I'm satisfied in my own mind that, uh, and again, today, nowadays, I'm an investor in you know probably 40 organic companies. I really don't want to know how many. Um, I don't want my wife to know how many, more importantly. But, uh, you know, uh, I'm satisfied that organic is absolutely capable of generating win-win-win-win economics. But that's a different way of thinking. Uh, most of capitalism is about somebody winning at somebody else's expense. And that, that's how we got into this mess with climate and toxins and, and uh, you know, uh, uh, food deserts and everything else. Did you ever uh, read Peter Thiel's book? Um, I think it's called Zero to One. And I never have read it. Was it was based on a symposium he did at Stanford. Very interesting idea of capitalism. And in his idea, real capitalism, there actually are no losers because you're never competing with anybody. You're always innovating, creating something new. Yeah. And, and so you're not fighting over, well, like I can pay my labor less than you pay your labor because you're doing something totally different. I, I thought it was a very 
in, interesting way of yeah. looking at the challenges that, that well, we face. The lens that I have evolved to look through is the lens of consumer products because uh, I start started from the premise that the most powerful thing that average consumers who may not be engaged in food production at all can do is to is to use conscious consumption to shift dollars towards more sustainable things than than away. But that means that you first have to be aware of what, it, and that's why we need standards, right? There has to be a there there. This is the problem with this word regenerative is there's no there there. And you have now uh, Pepsi uh, having ads of Lay's potato chips that have been, the potatoes have been re grown regeneratively, you know, whatever the hell that means. It means whatever they want it to mean. And it's a real threat to organic because they're trying to sound green and they're pouring millions into it. But through my lens, um, which is, uh, you know, in other words, we always, Samuel and I, from the beginning, always viewed the supermarket as a classroom. That was our kind of moniker. It was a place to, to sell stuff, but it was also to educate, to share values. That's why the back of our yogurt cups went into how it's grown and how you can find, and this is before social media, so we didn't have, you know, people couldn't go to our website. So we would send out moose letters, all the moose that's fit to print, and we would have thousands of these go out by mail. You know, remember mail? You would put it in the M. But if you get at a very base level at what, what's gone on with consumer products uh, up until uh, the organic um, era, I'll call it, uh, is that the, the mission of consumer products was always to make uh, charge as much as you could for your product and then make your product as cheap as you possibly could so you have as big a gross margin as possible. Because then with the big gross margin, in, the, in other words, the margin that's left after the cost of goods, you could then buy advertising. And you could use advertising at the same way we use it in politics, with reach and frequency to pummel people with messages, right? But that whole formula was based on cheaper product at the highest price. Um, that's the opposite of the way we think in organic. We're not all about the cheapest product. We re readily admit it costs. You don't, there's no free lunch. You gotta pay farmers properly. It takes three years to convert. There's a lot of labor that goes in. Um, you have, if, if an animal becomes ill, you don't treat it with cheap antibiotics. You take it out of the herd. That's an expense to the farmer. And, you know, you go through this whole labyrinth of costs, right? That you, uh, when you, you know, I, I can use the simple, like, aphorism, you know, internalizing the externalities. But what it means in real life is that you're taking on a lot of costs and a lot of risks. And of course you need the higher price, it's, it's more expensive. Um, but the bet that you're making is that over time, you'll have the higher yields that will you know, offset that. But getting back to my point about consumer products, what we set out to do, in the, and most people don't talk about organics this way, but this is the way I look at it. Uh, we set out to say, hey, we're not gonna focus on cheapening. We're gonna focus on paying the right price, making sure farmers are paid properly. So today, Right now, 2022, organic dairy farmers in New England earn to get a, a revenue that's 225% of what they would get if they were conventional. They get, you know, over 30 bucks, a hundredweight, and conventional farmers are getting around 12. So if you buy Chobani, you know, you're buying into a system that underpays the farmers. In fact, mostly below their costs. If you buy, buy Organic Valley or Stonyfield or, you know, even Horizon, which we'll talk about, 
you're p at least paying the farmers a, a, a livable wage, if not a, a, a fighting chance for economic survival. So our, our, our thing was, well, okay, we're going to pay, pay the proper costs for our supplies. Uh, and then we're going to have a smaller gross margin. And so we don't have the room to pay for advertising. So we don't have that tool that's available to most consumer products. So we're competing with Dannon and YoPlay and Briars and all the others with one hand behind our back because we don't have this kind of advertising budget. So what we set out to do was to tell our story, to actually, you know, open the kimono and share what was going on. And that's how we built Stonyfield, one cup at a time. The moose letters, the lids, putting cows up for adoption. You could get five cow If you sent us five lids, you would adopt a, a cow. You would get a certificate of your cow, you would get a photograph of your cow, and twice a year, in those days, the cow would send you letters, you know, talking about what was going on the farm. And it was a slow build, because we didn't have the power of television advertising or, you know, let alone Super Bowl ads to, uh, you know, get wide swaths of, of consumers. And so when, you know, Jack DeMoulis, uh, the buyer at, 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 at DeMoulis, he says, look, I'll take you in, but what are you gonna do for advertising? That's when we launched our, our, our Have a Cow program. Uh, we, we, we started having an engagement with consumers and we built thousands and thousands through these newsletters. In the end, we won. I mean, Stonyfield is, you know, one of the top four brands in, across the, you know, in the marketplace. And, and, and we're no different. I mean, uh, 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 Organic Valley, as I've mentioned, but, you know, Nature's Path. I mean, so many of these established brands got there without advertising, got there by, uh, sharing our story, building the ultimate holy grail of consumer products, which is loyalty. Because in the end, the power of loyalty is you get word of mouth. You know, if you're loyal to a product, you're going to tell your wife or your somebody buy this product. You get um, uh, passion. You get emotion. You know, you don't, most of us don't become loyal intellectually. We become, you, we feel it. And so nowadays with bloggers and social media and so forth, we're able to really be transparent. You can visit one of our live farm, our farms on camera now 24 seven, and you can feel connected to them. And so that's the central paradigm of organic is changing the way we think about even economics, paying the proper price of cost of goods, doing with less advertising because we're going to build loyalty by being real, by having an authentic purpose. And that's, of course, what you're getting at with the Real Organic Project is let's make it real. Let's, let's go back to dairy. Yeah. And, um, you know, when we were talking about dairy, you, you really gave a, a, a great description of what organic dairy is about and the, the benefits for all of us, whether we buy that organic milk or not, everybody right. wins. Right. It's why the government in Denmark has put such support into organic farming because they realize it's good for all citizens, right. not just the ones who choose to buy organic right, in the right, store. Right, right. So it sounds wonderful. I think I got the idea that organic farmers are making more than conventional farmers. Yeah, and that's scientific. Washington State University has, you know, documented evidence that organic farms make between 22 and 35 percent more net income. So here we are. Are there problems? Because I I see problems. Are there problems with organic dairy right now? We know we'll talk about what's happened with Danone, but but yeah. um, even before uh, Danone made their announcement, geez, farmers have been going out of business rapidly. So clearly, even though they might be making more money, it's still not working for many of them. Yeah, and 
you know, people say, well, it's the, it's the nut milks. And I go, no. I don't think so. In the big picture of dairy right now, we have an absolute catastrophe unfolding with conventional. Um, the pay price now going on seven or eight years has been on average below the costs of production, certainly for farmers in the Northeast, family farmers, even if they're three, four, 500 cow farms. On the conventional side, on average, the only way you're making it is if you're not accounting for depreciation. And you can see it. You can drive around and see conventional farms with their silos leaning and the fences run down and the barns unpainted because they can't afford the maintenance money. You go across the border into Quebec and instantly you see these tidy farms because they're pay conventional farmers are paid the proper price. In fact, conventional farmers in Quebec are paid, I'm, I'm not, I don't have the latest prices, but uh, for, compared to St. Albans conventional farmers over here, they're paid something like 30% more for conventional, not even for organic. So in addition, the other part of the catastrophe for conventional farmers is that uh, all of their input costs have gone up, especially during COVID. You know, we all see supply chain problems. So you have rising costs and price below, and the prices are oscillating, and you have no control over those prices. Now, this was not news. Uh, this is something... Samuel and the Flints and others of us set out to fix 30 years ago when we fixed an organic valley and, and credit where it's due, Horizons founders and set to a, 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 a fundamental kind of uh, a, a commitment of organic dairy was that we were going to pay a floor price that would not go down. That was, a, that was not tied to component costs. It was tied to what's a fair price for the farms. Now, uh, that price has been under pressure uh, because the other big problem in dairy, before I come around to organic, is that overall dairy consumption is dropping. And so uh, it's not due to plant-based alternatives. That is a factor. I, I think the latest estimate is that plant-based alternatives are making around a 6% dent across all dairy categories a little bit more in fluid milk, a little bit less in yogurt, a lot less in cheese. Um, it's because uh, we have an aging population uh, who are consuming less dairy per capita. Uh, it's because there are health uh, re reasons that people have moved away. There, We understand dairy allergies better. Um, you know, fundamentally, um, there's, uh, we probably over-index in the U.S. for dairy consumption. It's really basically baby food. And although it's an excellent source of nutrition, you know, calcium and protein and so on and so forth, all of us uh, are rethinking how much dairy we consume. And that's had a net effect of depressing the overall market. Um, then you have another factor that you cannot dissociate from all this, which is a marketplace factor, which is that uh, you've had a flood of new products in the marketplace out there. Uh, and during COVID, when groceries and uh, others have been challenged with traffic, um, you have uh, companies absolutely throwing products at retailers. And retailers are not stupid. They're taking the, the promotional allowances and so on and so forth. And it's depressed the price. Uh, and it's made it uh, a highly competitive. And if you're not in it, if you're I mean, most uh, dairies, I would say, are, are holding steady or losing money at this point right now. And so they're not about to raise their price to farmers. 
So you take all these conditions and it's, it's bad. And that's why we have this long waiting list of conventional farmers looking to convert. And all, ba basically all of our organic farmers were once conventional and they all left because they saw no future, certainly for their, their children. They le left conventional. Left conventional. Yeah. Now within organic, uh, and I'll just maybe focus on New England because this is where I am and, and I think, uh, and you are, and uh, it's the one, the region I know best. So even within organic, we've had uh, a challenging time. So in 2020, organic fluid, in, co in contrast to conventional organic fluid, which shrunk in 2020, and we don't have 21 numbers yet, that's why I'm giving you 2020, uh, organic actually grew by 12% in the marketplace. So we actually were, we, Stonyfield, were actually able to add on a few new farms in, in the last couple of years. Um, but uh, nowhere near comparison to the, the waiting list of farmers who want to convert. Excuse me, that's, it grew 12% by volume or by sales? By dollars. By dollars. By dollars, yeah. So some of that might have been a price increase. Uh, yeah, but in COVID there weren't much okay. price, there weren't price increases. It was, yeah. No, it was largely uh, consumption. Uh, you know, interestingly, uh, uh, digital online sales grew, so cheese, things that you can ship grew a lot. Local grew a lot. Uh, you'll, you'll see, uh, you know, talk to Shelburne Farms, talk to folks who had on-farm sales. They really spiked. People were staying local and they wanted, wanted more. Uh, and I'm pretty sure the numbers in 2021 will show the same thing. A, a, a small, you know, an increase. But that's again in comparison to a complete decrease, a collapse in in conventional, which dropped even further. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you'll subscribe, tell your friends, and leave us a rating and review so that others can find us. A video version of this interview is found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 91. In this second half, Gary will be talking more about the Northeast Organic Family Farm Partnership that was formed in response to the Horizon Dairy contract cancellations last summer. To support this podcast and our certified farms, become a recurring donor at realorganicproject.org and you'll get the benefits of being a real friend, including our book club, where you can ask many of our favorite authors your questions. Our next book club guest is Mark Schatzker, author of The Dorito Effect, The Surprising New Truth About Food and Flavor. We'll see you there. <laughs>